Episode 23, The Early Church and the Bible. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 23, The Early Church and the Bible. Remember how, a few episodes ago, we left Julius Caesar lying on the floor of the Senate in a pool of blood? Well, that's not how we left Jesus at the end of the last episode. It's a very different and very distinctive claim by his followers that he did die, but that he rose from the dead. They weren't claiming something like Buddha's followers or Muhammad's followers claimed after those guys died. Those groups claimed that their leader had been a prophet and had showed them the way to God or the way to live. Muhammad is buried in Medina, and Buddha was probably cremated after he died, although pieces of his body are scattered all over Southeast Asia. I once visited a shrine in Thailand that supposedly had a toe bone from the Buddha. But there are no such relics of Jesus' body. Put yourself for a moment in the context of Jerusalem in the days after Jesus had died, and then consider what the disciples were claiming. If he had really died, the disciples probably would have just scattered, or maybe they would have come up with a small cult around the idea that Jesus had been a Jewish prophet. But most likely, though, they would have scattered. I mean, consider who they were. They were a pretty ragtag group, and one of them, one of their own, had just betrayed them. Two, if you count Peter. But within a few days of his death, the disciples, instead of scattering, were very openly and very boldly proclaiming that Jesus had died and risen from the dead, and that they had seen him and that he had opened a way for people to get to heaven, and that he was the Jewish Messiah. Very quickly, this claim spread around Judea, and many people started to become part of the group of Jesus' followers. Again, put yourself in the context of Jerusalem in those days. If the disciples' claims had not been true, would this idea have spread? I don't think so. The earliest accounts of Jesus' followers are written down in the book of Acts. There's a very early account written down within a few dozen years of when Jesus died. Acts was written by a Greek physician named Luke, who apparently also became a follower of Jesus, though we don't have his personal conversion story. However, he does seem to become an eyewitness of some of the later things that he records in Acts, because the narrative switches from using the third person, that is, he went and did this, or they went and did this, and it switches in Luke 16, 10 to the first person where it says, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. So it seems that Luke has joined this journey to Macedonia and joined the narrative. By the way, before I get further into what it says in Acts, there's also one other very early account of the existence of Jesus and some of his followers. In the writings of a Jewish historian named Josephus, Writing in the late part of the first century and writing to a Roman audience, Josephus mentions John the Baptist, Jesus, and James, Jesus' brother. He doesn't say all that much about any of them, but he does say some important things. And the fact that they're mentioned outside the Bible at all in a very early history is actually very important. Back to Acts. According to Luke's account in the book of Acts, the story of the earliest days of Jesus' followers goes like this. Jesus had died on the cross, but on the day after the Sabbath, some of the disciples and some of the women who had followed Jesus 
had seen him again in the area around the tomb that he had been laid in. Then, over the next 40 days, he appears to them several more times, and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Fifty days after the Passover weekend on which Jesus had died, on the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, also known as Pentecost, which means 50 days after Passover, the disciples were all gathered together somewhere in Jerusalem. And in some kind of brand new way, God's Spirit comes upon all of them, something they hadn't ever experienced before and not described anywhere in the Old Testament as being this kind of reaction of people to God's Spirit. But God's Spirit falls on them in some different way, and they begin to speak a whole bunch of different languages. Here's a partial list of them. This list is from Acts. They speak the language of the Parthians, the Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, people from Pontus in Asia, that's part of Turkey now, Phrygians, Pamphylians, Egyptians, Libyans, Cyrenians, Romans, Cretans, and Arabs. That's at least 15 different languages. Anyway, speaking all these languages, the disciples apparently went out and talked to the people in Jerusalem. Peter's first sermon on that very day mentions several Old Testament prophecies about God's Spirit falling on his people, which is apparently what had just happened, right? And also about the Messiah. And Peter concludes with this point. This Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus who you crucified. Pretty bold stuff from a fisherman, right? Again, you might suffer from over-familiarity with this story, but think about how this would have been taken by the audience in that moment. They've just been accused by Peter of killing their own Messiah. Now, normally, an audience would be pretty angry about someone saying this to them, but it seems that instead they were, according to Luke, cut to the quick. And they repented, and they began to follow Jesus and joined the group of the disciples who were already following Jesus. And they also received this same kind of experience of God's Spirit falling on them as well. They became part of this community who were experiencing the Spirit of God. Anyway, part of my point here is that from the beginning, the message was that Jesus had been the Messiah and that he was risen from the dead. That message plus the accompanying sense of God's spirit or presence being with the group, caused the group to grow. And that's the summary of the early part of Acts. Not that there wasn't opposition. There are several accounts of Peter and others being thrown into prison. And then one of the believers, a guy named Stephen, was stoned to death for basically saying that same message to the Jewish Sanhedrin. There was one young Jewish guy named Saul who was there at that stoning, a witness to it. And he went on to persecute the other believers who are still following Jesus. Now, of course, Saul ends up becoming Paul, the apostle. And he goes on to spread this same message all over the Roman Empire. Apostle, by the way, simply means one who is sent. So they sent him out, right? Again, think about how unlikely it is that Paul becomes a believer in the first place and then later becomes an apostle if the message isn't true. Why would Saul convert from lifelong Judaism and then go on to spread the message that Jesus is the Messiah? It doesn't make sense if you're just thinking from the perspective of human religions spreading. But according to Acts, Jesus himself appeared to Saul, and after that he became known as Paul. 
And Paul's message was the same as the earlier message. Paul's first sermon is recorded in Acts 13. And his point, again, is that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has risen from the dead. Paul takes this message all throughout the Roman Empire. And according to Acts, Paul speaks to a bunch of different Jewish synagogues and congregations in different Roman cities. But he also speaks to several Roman magistrates and governors, including King Agrippa, who was then the Roman-installed client king of Judea. Paul, who was under arrest at this time, appealed to Caesar, which is a thing you could do. It's a legal right you had as a Roman citizen. He appeals to Caesar, which was probably Nero at that time. And so Paul gets shipped off to Rome. The book of Acts ends with Paul still in a Roman prison, or at least in Roman house arrest. Church tradition says that Paul did get to speak to Caesar, and that eventually Paul was beheaded by the Romans. But while he was on his journeys around the Roman Empire, and while he was in prison, Paul wrote a bunch of letters to different places he had visited. Other disciples, including Peter and John, also wrote letters to different groups in different cities, to different groups of Jesus' followers. And other disciples and other followers wrote other accounts, including the Gospels and other letters. We'll come back to these letters and accounts in a minute. But some other notable things happened right about this time that we should mention. Somewhere in this process, the people who were following Jesus went from being kind of a splinter subgroup of Jewish believers to being their own distinct thing. Judaism, as a religion, was hereditary. You had to be born into it, really. But being a follower of Jesus wasn't. Anyone could do it. That was part of the reason it spread. Acts records that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians in the town of Antioch during the reign of Claudius. So now there was this distinct new, well, we'll call it a religion, but it isn't really exactly a religion, at least not yet. It's a distinct group of people who are not Jews, but were following the Jewish Messiah. And somewhere along in here, this group starts to be called the ecclesia, which is a Greek word that means assembly. Now that word is usually translated in our English Bibles as church, but in the Bible, the word ecclesia this signifies the group of people, not a physical building. Church, the English word, comes from the Greek word kuriake, which means of the Lord, referring to later usage in the phrase the house of the Lord. So now, instead of a group of Jewish believers in their own Messiah, we have a church, or ecclesia, of non-Jewish Christians believing in the Jewish Messiah. It had grown well beyond its early Jewish roots. As the church grows, it seems to attract a variety of people, including serious followers, followers who are less serious and then some who walk away, some charlatans, and some false teachers who are teaching something other than what the disciples seem to want to be taught. This is the topic of many of these letters that Peter, Paul, James, and John, and the others wrote. All these letters, which are called epistles, that's, that's the Greek word for a letter, epistle, they all have a similar theme in a sense. The apostle who wrote the epistle is appealing to one ecclesia or another to stop doing something that they were doing that was wrong, right? To stop doing that, to ignore false teachers, and to go back to what they had learned in the first place. It's kind of the template for all the epistles. These epistles, as they got written, were read to the group that received them, and then usually because they were encouraging and important, they were copied down multiple times and handed out to other groups in nearby cities and spread around the Roman Empire. Let's take the epistle of Ephesians as an example. 
Paul, who might have been in prison in Rome when he wrote this, writes a letter of encouragement to the ecclesia, the group of believers, in Ephesus, which he had basically started on one of his journeys. In the letter, Paul encourages the believers in Ephesus to stay unified. He warns them against false teachers, and he mentions briefly his own personal circumstances, saying that he's in chains. And he mentions that he's sending them a guy named Tychicus. Now, Tychicus is probably the guy who actually brings the letter to Ephesus. So the letter arrives in Ephesus, it's read to the ecclesia, and the Ephesian believers are encouraged by it. Then the believers probably made copies of the letter, and they passed them around to each other, and they also carried copies to the other groups of believers nearby. This goes on with all of the letters of the New Testament. I should mention that there are a lot of other letters, besides the ones that we have preserved in the Bible now, that were circulated in those days. Very few of the letters actually survived. For example, we have two letters of Paul to the Corinthians that are in the Bible, right? 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And in the second letter, Paul mentions yet another letter, a third letter to the Corinthians, but we don't have any existing copies of the third letter. So there's a lot of other letters that were written by apostles and other people passed around, but not all of them get preserved into the Bible. At the same time that the apostles were writing these letters to the churches, some of the eyewitnesses were also writing accounts of Jesus's life. These accounts, including the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were also copied down many times and circulated around the churches in the empire. There were also other accounts of Jesus' life as well, but they didn't meet the criteria for being included in the Bible. So let's go back to around AD 100 now, right? That's 70 years or so after Jesus has died and was resurrected. At this point, AD 100, Paul, Peter, James, John, and all of the other original disciples have died or been killed. Paul was beheaded by the Romans. Peter was crucified by the Romans. And apparently he said that they should crucify him upside down since he wasn't worthy to die like his Lord. And John had died in exile on the island of Patmos. All of the original disciples are now dead. But in AD 100, there are churches thriving all over the Roman Empire. These churches are sharing these letters and these copies of gospels back and forth, but there's no standard anywhere. Everyone, each church, is responsible for figuring out which letters are legit and which letters are kind of sketchy. For example, the Gospel of Kanye or the Epistle of Second Opinions. Those seem kind of sketchy, but no one knew for sure. Each church had to look at the letters and the Gospels that they had in hand and decide, yes, this one's legit, and no, this one from Kanye is not. In other words, at around AD 100, there's no New Testament yet. We'll come back to how it comes together in just a second, but I mean to make a side trip about something else, and that is that in AD 100, there was also no Jewish nation anymore. Jesus died about AD 33, and about 33 years later, in AD 66, a Jewish revolt started in Jerusalem over excessive taxation and just general hatred of the Romans, and it led to a full-on rebellion, and it was so successful that the Roman cohort and the leadership was actually chased out of Jerusalem for a time. But you know how this is going to go, don't you, right? The Romans really don't like this kind of thing. So the Emperor Nero sent the General Vespasian and several Roman legions to quash the rebellion. Vespasian brought his son, Titus, who commanded one of the legions. Do those names sound familiar to you? They should, as both Vespasian and Titus will later become emperors of the Roman Empire. So Vespasian basically conquers all of Judea except Jerusalem, 
and in AD 69, he goes back to Rome to assume the job of emperor, leaving Titus to finish up the job in Judea. In AD 70, Titus captures Jerusalem, which actually had really put up quite an effective defense. And as the Romans did, they weren't kind to the people who resisted them. The Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem, even to the point of taking the, the temple completely apart, literally not leaving one stone standing on another stone. It was destroyed down to its foundations and most of the city of Jerusalem as well. This was the end of the nation of Judea. It's hard to overestimate how destructive this was to Judaism. Their temple, their capital, and their religious hierarchy were all destroyed. They didn't really have a home anymore. The nation of Judea had ceased to exist. From this point on, for the next almost 2,000 years, the Jews didn't have a home. And so from this point on, they're scattered all over the Mediterranean world, eventually setting, settling all over the Mediterranean and the Middle East and Europe. But Judaism as a religion ceased to have a central point, and it didn't have a temple anymore. So at some point, near the end of the book of Acts, Judaism is scattered, and it no longer has a central home. Christianity also shifts at this point, too, and instead of Jerusalem being the central city of Christianity, the center shifts. And of course, it shifts to Rome. However, it's important to note that at AD 100, there really wasn't a central authority in Christianity anywhere. And the cities of Alexandria, Antioch, Ephesus, and Rome all had important and well-respected centers of Christian learning and authority. Around AD 100, we start to see the emergence of new Christian writers, usually important leaders or elders of big churches, writing about what Christianity means, what it believes, and what its practices are. These early writers are known as the Church Fathers, and their early writings are very important in understanding what the Church was dealing with at those times. A lot of their writing had to do with combating some odd beliefs about Christianity that were beginning to crop up. Another issue that these early Christian writers were considering was the question of, which of all these Gospels and Epistles can we trust? Like I said, there was a lot more of these letters and Gospels besides the ones that end up in the Bible. For example, an early Christian writer named Marcion, who was the son of a church bishop in Pontus, again part of Turkey, published a list of books that he thought should be included in the authorized list of approved letters. Now his list isn't what eventually ends up in the Bible, but it's the earliest list that we know of. And also, I should point out that later church fathers will come back and call Marcion a heretic for some of his beliefs. But Marcion's published list forces other churches to start thinking about what their lists are and what was approved as being legit Christian teaching. This list eventually becomes known as a canon, so the canonical books of the Bible are the books that the church eventually agrees upon. So how did the church decide on which books make it into the Bible? Different church fathers put out different possible lists. And there was a list put out in AD 185 by Irenaeus, who was at that time the Bishop of Lyon, and that list became widely accepted. It had 21 of the 27 books that are now in the New Testament. It wasn't until the later church councils of the 300s that all 27 were finalized. And for quite a while, there was not a collected book of the New Testament. People just had these loose copies of different letters and gospels, and the church father writers were giving guidance on which of those writings were legit and which could be used for teaching and used in church services. The criteria that they used for inclusion differed for, from writer to writer, but the basic ideas were that the letter or gospel had to have been written by an apostle or someone very close to the apostles, 
There had to be good evidence that the letter was really from that person. The letter or gospel had to have some sense that the Holy Spirit really spoke through it to its readers, and the letter also had to uphold accepted Christian beliefs. These accepted Christian beliefs were called orthodox beliefs from the Greek word for right opinion or right thought. And there was a lot of debate about orthodox beliefs too. We'll come back to the idea of orthodoxy in another episode when we look at the church councils of the 300s. And they create lists of acceptable doctrines. And those lists are known as creeds. Eventually, the church settles on the 27 books of the New Testament. But it wasn't first called that. The first church father to use the term New Testament was a guy named Tertullian, who was writing a book called Against Marcion. You remember Marcion, right? That guy who had published the first list? Marcion, in addition to publishing an early list of canonical books, had also argued that the God of the Jews was a different God than the God of Jesus. Tertullian was writing to oppose this non-Orthodox idea, and he also talked about the idea of there being an old covenant with God between God and the Jewish nation, which was based on the law, and a new covenant between God and the church, which is based on grace or gospel. Testament is just another word for covenant or agreement. And the idea was that the gospels and the letters to the church were describing a new agreement between God and his people, a new covenant, a new testament, novum testamentum in Latin. Eventually, the Greek books all get grouped together and they become collectively known as the New Testament. But that didn't happen until the 300s. That's when the church started calling the Hebrew scriptures the Old Testament and the Greek writings to the church were the New Testament. The first 200 years of the church were marked by rapid growth across the Roman Empire and by these debates over doctrines, practices, beliefs, and which writings were legitimate for use in the church. Lots of the writings of the church fathers are one writer calling another one a heretic and explaining why their beliefs are wrong. It's kind of a theme. But honestly, a lot of Christian writing all through history, even up to today, is that kind of debate. It's part of the reason that there's so many Christian denominations. In the end, a good deal of this debating is because the Bible itself is actually kind of vague about certain points. And the church, especially the Western church, has always wanted to be really, really precise about its beliefs. Take baptism as an example. There have been many debates and church splits and creations of new denominations over the years over the question of what is a valid baptism? Can you just sprinkle water on a baby? Is that valid? Or does baptism require that you be an adult and go completely underwater for it to be valid? Does baptism actually save you, or is it just symbolic? The Baptist denomination was created over this question of baptism, taking exception to the old Catholic tradition of sprinkling water on babies. The Baptists said, no, that's not valid. Here's the problem, though. The Bible is actually very vague about what is a valid baptism and what isn't. The Bible clearly makes the point that baptism is important, but it doesn't describe this is the way that you have to do it. So down through the years, people have debated what is the right way, and these debates have gotten so heated at times that churches have split over them, even though both sides have some biblical support for their views. The Bible is actually this way about a lot of doctrines. That is, it's frustratingly vague about some things that we would like to have nailed down very precisely. So people create these precise systems of doctrine answering the tiniest questions and supporting them with quotations from the Bible. 
But then someone else will criticize that system and use other Bible quotations to support their own point. This happens because the actual writings in the Bible aren't really trying to solve or fully explain these doctrinal questions. The actual biblical writings are usually much more on practical matters, and they will mention doctrinal or theological concepts, but they do that without fully explaining it. Paul does this all the time in his writings. So does Matthew. For example, Matthew really, really likes to quote Jesus' parables, in which Jesus spoke in a very intentionally vague way so that some people would understand those parables, but not everyone. The church in general, throughout history, has loved to take these vague, incomplete ideas that are mentioned in the Bible but not fully explained, and then write long books that provide complete, precise explanation for their meanings. That trend started in the very first few generations of believers, and it continues today. A lot of the church splits, denominations, and debates that we have seen down through the years are really an issue of people trying to be ultra-precise in places where the Bible itself is actually kind of vague. So, by the start of the 300s, the church had sort of decided on most of the books that would become the New Testament. There were churches all over the Roman Empire, and even some outside the Roman Empire. The church was beginning to organize itself into a more formal religion, with clear leaders and clear hierarchies of who's in charge, with more agreement on what was orthodox doctrine and orthodox practice. By the 300s, you could say that Christianity was its own distinct religion, which is actually very different in some ways from what it was in the days just after Jesus' death. At that point, it had just been an assembly, a group of people trying to live together and follow Jesus' teaching, guided by the apostles. There wasn't a lot of formal structure, and there weren't designated church buildings. There wasn't a lot of doctrinal clarity, and almost nothing was written down. Within 250 years, though, most of that had changed, and Christianity had become its own religion, with its own practices, its own rituals, and its own celebrations. By the way, today, as I'm writing this, it's just a couple of days after Easter, the day on which Christians celebrate Jesus' resurrection. One of the earliest creeds of the church, or at least an early saying of the church, was the greeting, Jesus is risen, to which you would reply, he is risen indeed. That saying might be even older than the Apostles' Creed. It was one of the things that the early church all agreed on, that Jesus was risen. We're going to come back to these later creeds in a few episodes, but next episode, we're going to take a look at the height, the very height of the Roman Empire, and we're going to take a look at some spectacularly bad emperors, as well as a run of really good emperors who are called the Five Good Emperors. They took Rome to its largest extent, but then... After the fifth one, it's all downhill from there. One last thing I want to mention is that today, as I'm writing the script for this episode, it is April 19th, which is the anniversary of the shot heard round the world. That is, the opening shot fired by the Americans in the Battle of Lexington and Concord. That was the opening battle, or battles, of the American War for Independence. We'll come back to that too, but it'll be a while.